Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is Yoga Land. Today, my guest is Daya Grant. This is the second time Daya has been on the podcast. You may remember her from episode 258. We did a podcast together called This Is Your Brain on Yoga, and that's because Daya is a yoga and meditation teacher and a neuroscientist. So she understands and is up on all of the latest studies in terms of how yoga and meditation impact and influence your brain. So she has worked for the past 15 years as a mental performance coach, and she does this mainly for athletes and other high performers like doctors, executives, performing artists. And what caught my eye in terms of doing this podcast is that Daya has an online course. She has a couple of online offerings that she talks about toward the end of the podcast, but What specifically caught my eye for this podcast is her online course called MindFlow Masterclass. And in this course, she teaches about and examines the impact of yoga and neuroscience-backed mental skills on performance. So what we talk about in this episode are just, I cherry-picked some things that she describes in the outline of the course because I wanted to know more. And she offers it freely. So it's great. So we talked about how physical movement benefits the brain, some of those new studies and findings. The science behind affirmations, so mantra and focal points, drishti, to study the mind. We also talk about the neuroscience of flow, and I I learned a few things. I was a little rusty. I haven't read the book Flow in a very long time, so I was a little rusty and and learned some more specifics about flow states and also the triggers that help you enter a flow state and can help all of us enter a flow state more often. So this episode is packed with really interesting science-backed ideas that I know will get you excited about continuing to practice meditation and mindfulness. And I know it can be, there are just days even for me now where I don't want to will myself to sit and, uh, you know, say a mantra, or I don't want to will myself to move off my couch and do all of my, my exercise. But when I hear podcasts like this, when I talk to guests like this, I feel re-inspired. So I hope that you will too. One quick announcement, Jason and I have a, an online course coming up in January. It's brand new. It's the first time we've ever worked together, so we're pretty excited about it. And it's called Mind Body Reset, kind of a good tie-in to this podcast, which I swear I did not plan. But if you would like to learn more or enroll, you can go to learn.jasonyoga.com reset. And the whole idea is to just get us back to our practice get us back to, it's it's mainly geared toward yoga teachers, although anybody can take it, but getting us back to practices we love. And if you want to also hear more about that program, we did a podcast two episodes ago, all about essential life skills for yoga teachers to master. And that is kind of how we created the framework for this program. So go check that one out. Okay. Enjoy the interview with Daya. 
Well, thanks, Daya, for being here. I'm so glad to have you back on the show. I am thrilled to be here. I always love our conversations. Me too. Me too. So I wanted to start, I saw this summer, actually, I kind of watched your whole training ramp up on Instagram, but I saw that you completed, did you do a half marathon? Yes. That is amazing. And it was your first half marathon. It was my second standalone half marathon. Yes. And I say standalone because I've I've done a half Ironman that was feels like a different lifetime (laughs) before children. Um, But yes, this was my second standalone half marathon. I did my first six months after our first son was born. So that was six years ago. It was just a goal I set for myself. I got to train through the winter in New York City, which was an adventure. Oh my gosh. And we underwent a very challenging, painful, long fertility journey. We dealt with secondary infertility. And so when I finally got pregnant and it stuck and we knew the second baby boy was on his way, um, my husband looked at me and said, do you want to do another half marathon? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I had to table a lot of my physical activity goals throughout that fertility journey. And without hesitation, I said, yes, absolutely. Um, For me, signing up for that race as it was before, but there was a different meaning this time, was really about me reconnecting to my body, celebrating what it had been through, honoring it, and, and just doing something that I hadn't been able to do in so long. So I initially wanted to do a race six months after uh, Ryland was born, just like I did with Kaysen. But I'm six years older and recovery took longer. And I realized pretty quickly, okay, this is, I'm going to be rushing into it. And that's not wise. I really want to make sure I'm moving in a way that's, that's sustainable and really meets my body where it is in this recovery. So I pushed the race back and then in June did it. And it was just an amazing journey from the beginning through that finish line. That's so great. Wow. It's such a positive take. I mean, it's funny because I'm a person who has just loathed running my entire life. So it's it's really fun to 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 uh live vicariously through your energy about it. Um so you you mentioned that you know you're six years older, you'd been through a lot emotionally, um, going through infertility and physically, I'm sure. Uh yes. you've been you went through a lot giving birth for the second time and then your body recovering. So you know, you tr- you train and coach athletes to work with their minds. How did you work with your own mind? Mm. Oh my goodness! I pulled out all of the all of the skills that I have studied and shared with athletes, and it was actually really really cool to use myself as you know the subject of my experiments <laughs> and. I have all these tools and I always tell athletes, the goal is to have the tools and then to have enough flexibility and mental agility to know which tools to use at which time. And the tool that you use one day isn't necessarily the tool that's going to serve you another day. So 
there were days in training where like my body just wasn't quite feeling where I wanted it to be. I wasn't mm-hmm. feeling like I was up to the task of running X number of miles on that day. And I can be very, very stubborn and I can push myself really hard. And part of my challenge mentally was giving myself a little bit of grace and trusting in the journey and trusting that if I take it easy today, or if I don't even go out there and run today, and instead I get on my yoga mat, that's actually okay. And that's important. And the ego wants to say, no, 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 you have to go, go, go. You have to push. And I think through my yoga practice, I've recognized when it is the ego speaking Mm -hmm. and I can say, oh, okay, wait, hold on, hold on. There's a there's something deeper within me saying, mm, let's slow down, mm-hmm. let's rest. And 100% of the time, every single time that I listened to that inner voice instead of the ego voice, I was able to sort of leap ahead once I got mm-hmm. back into training. And it was really, it was every single time. And so that was just a lesson in in being able to distinguish between the ego voice and our deeper wisdom, our intuition. And I just am so grateful for my practice, for cultivating that relationship with my intuition. So I knew, okay, no, this is, this is actually intuition speaking. Every time I listened and honored that Hmm. I was rewarded the next, you know, the next time I got out there to train. That's hugely inspiring to hear that because I think so often we've you know tell ourselves or are told to just keep pushing and like no pain no gain and 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 then we go to the yoga room and we're told to listen to ourselves and so we're con- constantly in a in a battle when we try to live that in real life i'm really happy to hear that you did that and and you still felt like you were prepared for the race you were physically prepared you were mentally prepared did you have any um, thing that came up during the race that you worked with mentally or any tools that you had to bring into play while you were doing the race? Yeah, my body was my body was talking to me a lot. And there were pains that I had dealt with through training, but they just were not, they were not quieting down on race day. And it was really a lesson in shifting my focus because I knew because I had gone through training with these same pains that I wasn't doing further damage. So instead of allowing my mind to go to, oh, my Achilles are, are ah, this is hurting or my knees are not feeling great. It was trusting that I got through it in training, A, and then B, where can I shift my focus? So Mm. I would shift my focus to just the feel of the energy of thousands and thousands of people around me. And I would look up at the sky and just this clear blue, beautiful sky and look at the spectators and thank the volunteers who are passing out water. It was really just shifting out of my body and into the experience that was that was happening around me and that carried me through and i when i look back on it i was really i was really merging with the flow of the energy that was being generated by all of these incredible runners and i would you know i would also play little games like 
okay, I remember, I remember that guy. I saw him earlier. Can I catch up to him? Can I pass him? And so I do those types of things too, but it was really being mindful of where's my focus. You know, I often say it's so important to lean into the sensations in your body, but when you're on the, <laughs> when you're on the course and you're trying to get through that finish line, sometimes it can be detrimental to really feel every sensation. And so I, I just practice zooming out and mm -hmm. feeling the energy. And that was, that was helpful. I also went back to my why. And this is something that I encourage anyone to do, whether they're doing a race, whether they're grinding through a work project. What is your why? Because it will carry you through every single time. And mm -hmm. my why was my body went through hell to welcome this baby into the world. And I am now able to do this. Like I get to do this. I, I chose to sign up for this race. Like let's go. And something really remarkable happened the last five miles of the race. I just felt myself shift into another gear and I sped up. I did a negative split. So the back half of the race was faster than the first half. Part of that was due to the fact that the race was more downhill the second half. But I also know that some of it was just, okay, let's go. Like, let's just, this is a celebration and I'm going to dance through this racetrack, through this race course. And I'm pretty sure I had the cheesiest grin on my face for the second half of that race because it was really, it just clicked that, oh, okay, here I am. I'm doing this. Yeah, and you were doing it. And you were yeah, and it was it just, it was just so magical. And, and I think I would have missed it if I was so caught up with trying to get a certain time or, or what my body was doing. Like I just let myself surrender to the, to the energy and to the celebration. And ironically, I didn't realize this until actually a couple of weeks later, I actually did PR and that race was faster than the one I had done six years ago. And I had no idea. I was sure that it wasn't faster. So that was a little bit of a wow of a boost and just it, it was a real celebration. Yeah. And I think, you know, the grind is the grind and whatever it is that we're doing that we're working towards. But if you can find moments, if you can sort of find a way to dance across the finish line and whatever it is that you're doing, it just shifts the perspective and it shifts how your body experiences this thing. Mm. Um, that was a takeaway for me. I love it so much. And a lot of what you're saying, I won't go into my own, what I'm going through right now, but a lot of what you're saying is really helping me in my own life right now. So, mm. so thank you. It's interesting. Jason does Br Brazilian jiu-jitsu and it's only been in the last, I don't know, six or seven years. Um, he grew up a competitive athlete and he, missed that. He missed that feeling of engaging in that way. And he's done a few jujitsu competitions and he doesn't really like to do it because he's wanting to compete. It's more about wanting to push himself to do it. It, yeah. it just reminds me of the work you do. And so he actually just did one two, was it two weekends ago? And we always kind of tease him because he's, you know, in his late forties and they, they, they divide you, you compete within your weight class, within your belt class, and within your age bracket. Mm -hmm. 
So his, you know, weight, belt, and age bracket is very small because there aren't a lot of 40 some, you know, late 40s men who are willing to go yes. out there and do this. So he always right. does really well because he competes with like two people. But still the day of, you know, the day of he was Sophia and I were at a horseback riding lesson and and he was he was calling us and I told her to give him a little pep talk because we're always giving her her pep talks and I wanted her to practice that encouragement. Awesome. And he yes. was saying, "Can I just can I just not do this right now? Like, can I just, can I just not? And she's like, you got this, blah, blah, blah. And she gave him like this whole psych up talk. And then just like you're describing that last five miles and just feeling so joyful. Like he was just so happy once it was done. Yes. So happy that he set a goal for himself. He was kind of nervous. He was flat out scared a little bit, you know, in parts of him. He was excited and he like harnessed all of that. He and he did it, and that was that was the most important thing. So, yeah, oh, that's thrilling. Bravo to Jason. And I, I know, <laughs> and I know that he'll draw from that when we have those experiences. We're able to draw from them in the future when we're faced with another challenge or some resistance in doing something. It's that courage that he tapped into, and that joy that he experienced will help him. It'll serve him the next time in whatever it is that he's choosing to do. I, I was thinking it definitely helps when you're trying to coach your kid through things too. And I was thinking for you, it's it's so great to see you walk your talk because this is what you do. You coach people on their mental game. And so then you put yourself in that position so that I'm sure it makes you a better a better coach as well. And you have an online course right now and that I was, when I got back in touch with you, I wanted to talk to you about, I was, I was pitching to you, like, let's talk about meditation again. And then I went online and I looked at what you were working on right now in your own life. And I saw your, your MindFlow masterclass online course. And there were, there are just some, I mean, it all looks amazing, but there are some specific parts that I wanted to ask you about, and I was hoping we could I could kind of cherry pick a little bit today and and just pick your brain yes. on 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 some of this information for for our listeners. Absolutely, I'm so excited about this course, and let's talk about anything that piqued your interest. Okay, 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 okay. Well, actually, why don't we start out by having you give people an overview? Because you do incorporate yoga into it, which I think is really interesting. That's not the part I'm going to ask you about today, but because I feel like, you know, a lot of people listening have that background, but maybe you could just give us the broad stroke overview. Yes. Yes. So this is a six-week online course, the MindFlow Masterclass, and it is for athletes and high performers. So anyone who identifies as a performer in whatever arena they find themselves in. They're looking for ways to get out of their own way, to transcend the chatter that happens in the mind, the doubts, the mental blocks, and really elevate their performance. Not only that, find greater fulfillment in what it is that they're doing as well. So I incorporate neuroscience, mental skills, traditional mental skills, and yoga philosophy. And it's that blend that I have found is so powerful in the work I do with one-on-one with athletes and high performers. And so I've figured out how to present this in a course. And there is a live component as well. So you 
you get to interact with me and with everyone else in the course. And we go through this journey together. So it really does help you identify your mental blocks, help you put together a toolkit like we were talking about earlier so you can draw from that in your performance ambitions. And yeah, it's it's kind of everything I've learned to this point wow. with all of those areas of interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you talk through, so it's in modules and you introduce the yoga sort of framework and the eight limbs and then you get into kind of the benefits of how physical movement benefits the brain. And that is a huge area of interest for me and I'm sure for so many people. So what are some, what are some things you can talk about from that component, how physical movement benefits the brain? So we, a lot of people know that there is such a tremendous benefit psychologically. So we've experienced it, right? Our stress goes down. We experience fewer symptoms of anxiety and depression. Our mood is boosted. These are all psychological benefits. But I am interested in diving even deeper and looking at the molecular level. So a couple things. One, Exercise upregulates the expression of a protein called brain-derived neurotropic factor. This is BDNF. And that's really important because BDNF stimulates synaptogenesis. Okay, so many, so many <laughs> words, technical words. But synapto is synapses. So it's the connections between our brain cells, our, our neurons. And then Genesis, the creation of. So BDNF stimulates the creation of new synaptic connections between neurons. Hmm. So if exercise is upregulating that, we are in a very real way changing the architecture of our brain. That's important because those increased connections support cognitive functions, support our memory, our learning, our reaction time, ability to focus. Obviously, all of those cognitive functions are critical for performance. So another thing that exercise that exercise does, and this one's really cool. I learned about this. It's pretty recent research, but when we exercise during high stress times, we are increasing a neuropeptide called galanin. And this is this is a in a part of the brain called the locus coeruleus, which is in the brainstem. And this is really important because galanin helps us mediate the body's stress response. So essentially what we're saying is this is a neurological mechanism to help explain why exercising when we're stressed hmm. actually promotes resilience to stress in the future. So we're increasing galanin we're increasing our ability to, to manage stress when we're doing it in those high stress moments. So it's just cool to see that there's really a lot of evidence to support that moving our body, sweating changes the chemicals in our brain and that can change our, you know, the way that the different parts of the brain connect and relate to each other. Yeah. And I actually, I, want, I do want to mention most of this data has been collected with aerobic exercise. That's just been the most studied. 
But there are some studies that suggest, and we know this as yogis, but the asana practice also enhances executive functions. So things like planning, self-control, the ability to stay focused, to initiate tasks, and a single bout of exercise, even just a single workout can improve cognitive functions for up to two hours after the workout is over. Wow. So, and I experienced this. We've all experienced it. Yeah. In the early months of, you know, a newborn baby, there's, it's, it's a lot. And one of my motivations for getting out there and running was to clear some space in my brain and Mm -hmm. to, to reconnect to cognitive functions that, you know, kind of turn to mush Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) when you're incredibly sleep deprived. Right. Um, So, yeah, so those are some of the some of the benefits. And we're going to be learning so much more about this as, you know, the years go on. So you said it's called gal, Galleon? Gal? Galanin, G-A-L-A-N-I-N. So with that example, I mean, that's really interesting because it's it's reinforcing the idea that even when you're going through really stressful times or events, that it's a good idea. And that is for me personally, I'm sure for others as well, a really hard time to get motivate myself to move. Like I would always rather kind of crawl under the covers and take a nap. Of course. (laughs) Of course. But it sounds like getting yourself out there will, will have positive chemical effects on the brain. Yes. Yes. And, and is there, what kind of duration and intensity are we talking about here for, for these examples? Good questions. So again, a lot of the data and a lot of the studies have been with aerobic exercise, but the general recommendation is 30 minutes, four to five days a week. Okay. Now, I think that can be, we often forget the value of getting outside and going for a walk mm-hmm. at a brisk pace. That absolutely counts. And I keep seeing, you know, as my parents are getting older and they're not able to do the kind of the harder, more intense workouts that they perhaps once did, I always remind them about the benefit of walking. And the research is really, really strong there. Mm -hmm. So yes, get on your yoga mat, go for a walk, 30 minutes, four to five days a week. Not crazy. That's totally it's doable. Very, very manageable. Yes. And you can still get in that nap and you can still <laughs> right. cozy up under the covers too. <laughs> it's really, no, it's really true. It's really true. <laughs> I've gotten better in actually in the last 10 years, probably because of having a kid. And like you said, you need to clear that space in your mind. And I have gotten better about getting out and moving my body more. And I do still take my naps. <laughs> So, yes, yes, it is yes. possible. And sometimes it makes yes. Sometimes it makes the naps even deeper. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, another point that caught my eye in your in your course is the science behind mantra and focal points and drishti to study the mind. I have not seen the science behind these two, obviously vital components to yoga practice. So I'm dying to hear. Yes. Okay. So we'll start with mantra. And just a reminder, we know this, but mantra comes from manas, which is mind, and tra, which is tools, right? So it translates to an instrument of thought. So they did a study where 
they had participants repeat silently the word one. <laughs> they were lying in an fMRI scanner and they were just repeated in their head one, one, one. Obviously, one isn't totally bursting with spiritually powerful qualities. Although it, it could, now could that be. I think about it. Right. right. <laughs> it could definitely refer to our, our connection, our universality. Um, that's a side point. So, but the, the goal of this study was to isolate the effect of a repeated word on the brain. So they actually found that repeating one over and over caused a widespread reduction in cortical brain activity across a lot of different networks. And the most notable was the default mode network. We might have talked about this in our last podcast. We did a little bit, but I always can, yes. I always use a refresher. <laughs> yes, of course. Okay, so the default mode network is involved with self-referential processing. And that's really important. We need that. However, if it's hyperactive, that can lead to rumination and depression. So when we when we engage in a task, like right now we're having a conversation, we're speaking with each other, we are reducing the activity in our default mode network. We're engaging in something outside of, of ourselves, right? We're not getting stuck in our heads. But by repeating mantras, even though we're doing something, there's a global decrease in inactivity without a corresponding increase in activity somewhere else. So this is essentially the neural correlate of the power of mantra to quiet the mind universally. And I just think that's really, really cool. Yeah. We have talked about how practicing these mantras and affirmations can just help you feel a little bit calmer. Right. The reason is that your brain is, is engaging in less activity and that's not a bad thing, right? Because right. our brain is typically overstimulated and hyperactive. Um, and if we're really able to focus it, that gives it the much needed rest that it needs so it can then focus on other things later. It makes the so much drishy. sense. Like, so, so basically it's like the idea that when you're, I mean, it's just exactly what you said. When you're focusing on one word or one group of words, you're giving that default mode network, which can ha- can have a tendency to over kind of process and ruminate, you're giving that part of the brain something to focus on and to get out of that constant rumination. And yeah, it sounds like a much needed break from, I mean, that is so interesting when you think about it because we just, we think about, you know, resting our muscles or we think about like when we do inversions, it's like, oh, it's good for the circulatory system. Or I like that framework of working with the mind and giving it a chance to rest on Mm. a consistent, repeated affirmation, phrase, mantra, however you want to refer to it. Yes. Yes. And to make it really, really practical, I would encourage everyone to practice this when they're starting to feel their mind get really scattered, we all have those moments. I mean, right now, if you're a parent, our kids are getting back into school and there's just a lot going on. If we're starting to feel that our mind is being pulled in so many different directions, practice a mantra. 
I mean, you can just take the word one. <laughs> That's what they did in the study. Or take something that really resonates with you, practice it for five minutes and see if you feel that shift. I think all of these studies are really interesting, but they become more powerful when we put the their teachings, their lessons into practice and we yeah. experience it ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, just practice Test that. Practice out. five minutes Right. Try it out and mm-hmm. see how it feels. See if you can feel that softening in your, in your, like, I just really can feel my brain just soften mm-hmm. <laughs> in the most expansive, necessary way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you. The Drishti thing is, is essentially the same. So I have been waiting for a study to come out. <laughs> looking specifically at this, like when we focus our gaze gaze on an object. Um, And, you know, we can talk about Drishti as referring to just focusing in on a direction in general in the more macro sense. But here I'm really, really talking about when we're on the mat and we're directing our gaze on an object or on a point. Our brain also does slow down. And They did a study. It was very, very technical. And truthfully, it was a challenge to figure out exactly what they were doing. But essentially, they measured reaction time as a result of drishti without calling it that, focusing the the gaze. And reaction time increased. So brain, the brain slowed down, but our reaction time increased. So that's essentially saying what the other studies showed too. All of the activities that were not necessary for this task were able to to reduce, like there was a reduction in activity in all of the other noise, all of the Mm. other stuff that our brain was involved in. When you focus the eyes, you slow down the mind, and then it can respond quicker. There's less visual input. There's less visual input to process. So the cognitive processes that are important can really rise to the surface and take over and do what they need to do much quicker than when they're bogged down by all this other stuff they have to process and sort through. Wow. So that that was really interesting. Um, if we want to combine these, look at, a, pick a focal point. Like anyone, as you're listening right now, if you're not driving, look at something and just practice a mantra. We can do it together for a moment. We'll use one Pick a focal point, an inanimate object, something that's not going to move, and just repeat in your mind one, one, one. Do that five more times on your own. Okay. You just did something very real for your mind. You may not have felt it it tremendously, but there was a slowing that you were inviting in. Mm -hmm. So it's the science is there. Yeah. Let's keep Mm -hmm. practicing this Mm -hmm. and really experiencing it for ourselves. I I just, it's amazing. It's so simple, right? But it just, it makes sense from a scientific standpoint. So it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. One of the bigger topics that you, introduce in the in the program is the neuroscience of flow. So let's talk about that. I think most of us are familiar with this concept of a flow state, but 
actually, maybe it would be helpful if you start there and defining what you mean by, by flow. Sure. So there's some characteristics of flow state. One, you experience a sense of effortlessness. You're totally absorbed in the task at hand, and there's an ease that comes with that. The perception of time is completely altered. If you're in flow state, you don't really know how much time has gone by. And sometimes you come out of it and you're shocked that 45 minutes, two hours, however long has gone by. There's also a strong sense of control, but without tension. So you have this mental mastery over what it is that you're working on, but there's not a gripping, there's not there's not that tension. Again, there's this ease. There's also a disappearance of self-consciousness. So there's there's a sense of unity between the person and the object of their attention. Mm-hmm. There's this oneness. There's an absence of negative thoughts, a general sense that this feels good, it's going well, and it's really energizing. So when we experience flow state, we athletes, high performers feel a strong motivation to keep engaging in whatever that is that we're doing that's yielding the sense of flow. Hmm. So it's sort of, not sort of, it very much is an optimal performance state. It's what every athlete wants to experience. And it feels, it really feels really, really good. And you could, you could experience it in athletics, but you could also experience it, let's say like when you're painting, right? Or- I was just thinking to myself, oh my gosh, when was the last time I was actually in a flow state? Which is a little bit of a sad mm. thing. But the first thing I thought of was when I did a, a sound healing recently. Would that is something that passive could could something that passive be considered being in a flow state? That's a really good question. So typically not. Okay. It would be probably defined in like a blissful state or something something else. And this is part of my work right now is really trying to look at flow state versus sort of bliss and bliss consciousness. And there's a lot of overlap, but I think there is some distinction. Flow state really requires a high level of challenge, but also a high level of skill. So it's that whatever it is that you're doing has to be challenging but you have to also have the skills to be able to do it. So yeah, passive things probably wouldn't fall into that category. What about like singing? That's definitely like singing or making music. Yeah, yes. Okay. The creating, creating of music can be, right? Okay. So there's something that precedes flow state that most people don't recognize. And a lot of times we fight against is there has to be a struggle. You want to put yourself in a position of being uncomfortable and mm-hmm. you, there's always, so there's kind of to step back, there's four stages of flow. The first is struggle. It's, there's resistance. There's, oh, I don't know if I can do this. Can I do this? Like, this is really hard. This is, I don't know. This doesn't feel great, but you are forced then to focus, to hone your concentration, to exert effort. and to do that, you eliminate distractions, you drop into presence, um, and there is sort of a cocktail of neurochemicals that are active in that phase, the struggle phase. Cortisol is up, 
Adrenaline is up. Norepinephrine is up. After that, when you get through that, you then, this is like when you hit a wall, you release and you surrender. So at the beginning of that phase, your frustration is an all-time high. You're working on, you are a beautiful writer and I'm talking to you (laughs) and you are, you know, you're sitting there and it's like, oh, so many thoughts. How do I get them down on paper? Like, look, I have these fragments of sentences on the page. Mm -hmm. How do I, there's that struggle that I know you can identify with. Yes, that's true. You Mm -hmm. hit that wall and then, (laughs) and then you have some surrender. And usually at that point, it's recommended to take a break, go outside, disconnect from what it is that you're doing. Don't do it too early. Like you've got to get to that point where you're really pulling your hair out. Then step three is the actual flow. And this is where you're now, the puzzle pieces are coming together. The challenge is high, but your skill you've recognized is also there. You're intensely focused and that can last anywhere from a few seconds to Typically, 90 minutes is is a good amount of time. It's a common amount of time. Every once in a while, people will enter into a flow state for longer than that, for a couple of days, but that's rarer. And then the fourth stage is recovery. This is where you exhale, you come back to homeostasis, you regroup. So yes, so to answer your question, you need that struggle. Okay. <laughs> you need that no, struggle no, to get into it. <laughs> great explanation of, of the arc of that. That's super helpful. Okay. All right. So what's happening to the brain in these phases or what's important mm-hmm. to know about the brain? The neuroscience underlying this is really still a work in progress, but there are a couple of theories. One theory is, and the two theories are actually a little bit contradictory, which is what makes science fun. <laughs> Um, the first theory is, is called transient hypofrontality hypothesis. Okay. THH. This is when your brain, the idea is that your brain activation shifts from the prefrontal cortex, the left prefrontal cortex, where you're doing a lot of executive control functions, right? So you're thinking, you're planning, you're really engaged in, in those actions And it's shifting to the more posterior regions of the brain. So that's where there's more automatic processing. You are essentially shifting from the more analytical, let's get after it, let's figure this out, to the more intuitive, let's be present, let's simply be that activity in the the right hemisphere and more posterior parts of it. So that's one theory of what may be happening when you're in flow. The other theory is the synchronization theory of flow. So this is that suggesting that instead of a a shift from the left hemisphere, the front of the left hemisphere to sort of the back of the right hemisphere, there's actually a synchrony that takes place. So networks of neurons here are binding together, and that may lead to more efficient brain activity and to higher order experiences of consciousness like flow state. So there's more, yeah, there's more synchrony and more efficiencies that arise from that. Hmm. So those are a little bit contradictory. I think that there's probably, it probably depends on what the activity is and maybe what led up to it Mm -hmm. or there's a hybrid of these two, but there is definitely 
something shifting at the level of the networks. And as I mentioned, at the level of the neurochemicals as well, that is creating this experience. So aside from the enjoyment of the flow state and like the outcome of a flow state, which tends to be productive, what do you see as the benefits of, of the flow state? Well, those are those are the benefits. Those are the benefits. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> like, there's a real there any like brain growth, like you know, or I don't know, like synaptic connections or anything like that. That's a really good question. That's a very good question. If I were to guess, I would say that there's certainly something beneficial happening, right? If only that, like, you're moving through. So. We don't want it. So the goal of the brain is to get us back to homeostasis. The goal of the body is to get us back to homeostasis. Like we always want to find that place where it can be more at rest. And when you go through these four stages of flow, you are moving through different, I guess, just different activities of the brain, different, yeah, different activities. And so it's, it's important, I think, for the brain to engage in to be used in these different ways, right? We don't always, we don't want to be in flow state all the time because (laughs) then we really have a hard time functioning in the world. Um, But we also don't want to be in that struggle phase all the time. So perhaps there's some benefit to moving through the four stages of flow and exercising these different, you know, I'm just kind of being creative here and brainstorming. Yeah. Um, But perhaps there's something there. It's interesting to think about how it, it's this combination of a skill, right? Because you say there's like a struggle and it does require some skill to get into, get past the struggle, get into the flow state. So it's like this combination of the skill and then and then that more intuitive part of the brain taking over. Like once you're in flow, you're not even necessarily aware. I, 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 the easiest example for me to think of is watching my daughter ride her horse, because hmm. every time I would say she she gets to a, well, not every time, but probably 80% of the time, there are some moments of flow state. But when hmm. you get on the horse, you have to like tune into the horse, what mood the horse is in today, how you're feeling, what the weather is, if they've eaten their dinner yet you know, all of these things. So there's like this struggle and then there's the skill to get them to the point where you're in flow together with the horse. And once they're in flow, it just seems, it doesn't seem like they're as, as actively, she doesn't seem like she's as actively utilizing this skillfulness. She is, right? She's still guiding it, but it's like more of an intuitive process at that point. Yes. Yes, so that's a yes, really yes. interesting, like, kind of human phenomena that we get to do that. Hmm. That's so <laughs> true that we get to. Yes, and I think part of the part of the joy of all of this is finding out where what we can do to enter into those that state more often, and it may just be glimpses of it. You, it may not. You know, it's really hard. Every athlete wants to know how can I get into flow state, and it is there's some grace involved. Like all the stars have to align. It's not the easiest thing to just drop into. 
but that's what makes it really interesting and exciting. And you're right. There's all that stuff that has to happen on the front end before we can allow the flow to happen. And I experienced it in, in my race too. Like the first, whatever, eight miles were a grind and I was shifting my focus and trying to be present and trying to eliminate distractions. And there was a lot happening. And then there was a click and something clicked. And obviously the challenge in front of me was the last five miles when my body was already quite tired and my mind was starting to get tired. Um, But I also intuitively knew that I had the skill to do that. And that's then when flow was allowed to happen. And, And then your job is to just ride it, ride it as long as you can. That's awesome. Yeah. I was going to ask you when I, before you just started to talk about it, I was going to say, were those last five miles where you had the big smile on your face, was that flow state for you? Yes, 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 yes. It absolutely was. And I think to go back to the benefit, um, there is, you know, there is something about experiencing those moments. And it's almost like we're teaching the brain that we're capable of this, that it's capable of this. And so every time we tap into this sense of flow, even if it's momentarily, it's a recognition that, okay, we can let go a little bit. Like we are capable of merging with something bigger than ourselves and and reaping the benefits of that. And so it's almost like a teaching, a training every time we get into that place. And there's certainly benefits to that. Right. What's happening at the neural level, we have to figure out. But yeah. but yes, they're they're definitely like this is good for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best states there is, aside from, like you said, the bliss state. And I feel like that's kind of an interesting place for us to to end, which is you talk about in the course the power of being and learning how to experience a settled mind or samadhi. So let's talk about, you know, again, defining terms. What it, what do you mean by a, a settled mind? Mm. It's when we're really able to harness the the mental activity and be very intentional with how our brain is engaging, which then produces a very euphoric feeling. Mm. Even before euphoria, just peace, just calmness, just quiet, ease. And, you know, samadhi, I think is it can feel really out of out of reach, right? Like it is reserved for the enlightened ones. However, it's not. It's something that we can tap into. And I I just like that phrasing because we may, you know, kind of dip a toe into it and experience this level of just real contentment, santosha, right? Just real peace. Samadhi is really this refined state of awareness where there's no longer separation between our mind, our body, our spirit. And we have guidance from the sutras on how to get there more often. And that's moving the body, the asana practice, um, withdrawing the senses, drawing towards the opposite, right? Pratyahara. Then we steady the mind. We focus our concentration with dharana. Then we start to deepen into that silence, into that stillness. And from that emerges joy, peace, even if it's just glimmers of it. Like that's 
that's starting to connect to samadhi. That's starting to experience it. I like the analogy of, I did this with my son when he was little, our older one, the analogy of like a mason jar of muddy water and how we're moving through our days just imagine that jar shaking and the muddy water is just flowing everywhere and you can't see through that jar. But then when you still the jar and you start to be really intentional with just the energy you're creating through that stillness, then over time, the mud starts to settle, right? And if you let it sit long enough, then you have some clarity in that water. And that's that's what we're trying to get to with our mind, with our mm-hmm. the activity of our brain. We are so busy, busy, busy doing, doing, doing. And when we can just be, when we still the movement of that jar, then we can get some real clarity. And from that is where our wellspring of joy is, of peace, of love, of all of these beautiful qualities that we want to experience more of. So when we're able to go through the process that's presented through the sutras and practice this and then get to that place in meditation, tap into it in meditation, then we can take that off the mat and see how we can experience some senses of samadhi in our activity. So we bring that deep stillness into everything that we're doing. Mm -hmm. It's none of this is easy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but Mm -hmm. it is Mm -hmm. so... It is such a worthwhile pursuit. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and there are practices that we can do to just tune ourselves into those moments when we're feeling fully alive, when it really feels like every cell in our body is vibrating, not with busyness, but with bliss, with mm-hmm. that just aliveness. Mm-hmm. I love um, in everyday life, just paying more attention to our senses and our sensory experiences, just the pleasurable sensory experiences. Like, you know, when you're taking a walk, you know, what comes into your visual field that is just beautiful and pleasing to your eyes, (laughs) just actually noticing I get to, I'm looking at the ocean right now and it's so beautiful or that bird just flew by and just taking a moment to actually recognize when your senses are experiencing pleasure and kind of like embed that in inside you. That to me is always like, that's kind of where I recommend that people start in their everyday life. For me, it's easier than doing the gratitude list. I still struggle with the gratitude list not being repetitive or not seeming Mm. kind of rote, but just tuning into like the sensory experience every day of things that are just some delicious taste of food that someone made for you. Or yesterday, even just I took my daughter for ice cream and she ate the ice cream. I didn't even eat the ice cream, but just the pleasure of like being with her in this delicious smelling ice cream shop and watching her eat the ice cream. (laughs) Yes. That is So that is so beautiful. And that's what it's about. Like we are not, we're modern yogis, right? We're not living in caves in the Himalayas. We have to figure this stuff out in our day to day. And that's, there's challenge there, but it's also, it's wonderful. And um, there actually is 
some really cool science looking at awe and its effect on our psychological states. So yes, like notice those moments of awe of those just little things, all of those things that you mentioned, those are beneficial and just let that kind of seep into your body. Yeah. And like you said, it's, it's, I mean, the thing about the brain that's, I'm so glad we know this now is the plasticity and the, and that the practice part is so important because even if you feel like you're not getting it, the more you practice it, you are getting it. It's happening. It just might feel so incrementally slow that you don't notice. But then suddenly one day you'll notice, oh, when I'm taking a walk, I notice like the buzz of that bird's wing flying by. You know, you you it does happen. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate, it, it, what, I appreciate what you said about samadhi feels so out of reach. I mean, when I first started doing yoga and my training and things like I just thought, well, that's not for me. I'm I'm just never gonna be worthy of that. You know, I'm never going to be that austere that I feel that. And I, I guess I'm much more of the kind of tantric view now of like, it's actually all here. It's just about waking up to it. That's exactly it. Waking up to it and, and celebrating when you do recognize it. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks so much for being here again today, Daya. I always love talking to you so much. And you have got a couple of offerings coming up, including this course we've been referring to the whole time. But you also created a shorter master, I mean, a shorter workshop version, right? That's coming up like next week. So so tell us about how people can find out about those and, and kind of what they will cover. Yes. Everything is on my website, diagrant.com. And this first workshop next week is called Reflect and Reset. And it's a way to leverage your learnings from your personal journey in 2023 into growth and greater fulfillment in 2024. So we'll get into mental skills. We'll talk a little bit about the neuroscience and we'll really set the stage for next year. I might have to do that workshop. Sounds so fun. Oh my goodness. I would love to have you. Yes. (laughs) I'm excited about this. And it's something, it's a practice that I do yearly and I figured, why, why not share it? it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So yes, that'll be exciting. And then for anyone that wants to go deeper into this mindset work, that's where the Mindful Masterclass comes in. And that's my bigger course, a six-week course. I'm going to launch it again mid-February. So go to my website. You can join the wait list. And that's a deeper dive into mental training, more of the neuroscience, real practical skills for elevating your your mental game and performing with more consistency and more fulfillment. So yes, those are the two offerings coming up in the next week and then next few months. And I would absolutely love anyone who's who's ready for this and wanting this work. Yeah. It's awesome. Thank you so much. I mean, yeah, I think it's just what you do and your understanding of all of it because of your 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 degree and then your work and then your yoga just is is so unique. So so I encourage everybody to go go check out your website and sign up for your newsletter and all that good stuff. Yes, right. my weekly newsletter. Thank you so much for having me. It's always such a joy to talk to you. And I'm just so so grateful for everything that you're sharing. Thanks, Daya. Thanks. Take care. 
Thank you so much for listening. I will put links on the show notes page at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 317. Do go to Daya's website and check her out, uh, especially her short workshop that she's doing. I'm going to join that one for sure. It sounds really fun and just up my alley for the end of the year. And then if you are interested in learning more about our upcoming course in January, go to learn.jasonyoga.com slash reset. I thank you all so much for listening. I appreciate you. I wish you all health and safety and peace as we wind up this year. And until next week, enjoy your practice.